Welcome to River Oaks. It is so great to have all of you with us today. Welcome also to those of you joining us online. I want to say a word of thanks to uh, Phoebe Pitakala for that beautiful reading in Telugu, and also to those of you who have served with Pastor West and our Unreached People Group ministry team over the past 10 to 12 years. It's a remarkable thing what the Lord has done. And thank you to all of you for your giving to our church. Out of your giving to our general fund, we're able to support missions, including our missions to unreached peoples. And uh, we envision this as an increasing part of our ministry here at River Oaks and are so thankful for your partnership. Well, today we're continuing in the great book of Romans. Book of Romans is the Apostle Paul's most systematic explanation of what we call the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. In chapters 1 through 11, Paul has laid out in a very logical way an understanding of what God has done for us in providing our salvation that is to be received through faith in Jesus Christ. As we get to Romans chapter 12, the Apostle Paul is emphasizing more how those who have come to faith in Jesus can have renewed minds and transformed lives and live out the gospel of Jesus before the surrounding world. Today we're in chapter 13, the passage that Phoebe just read for us a moment ago. And uh, the Apostle Paul is going to talk here about uh, government, obeying human institutions, about living a life of love. He's going to cover, cover several uh, subjects that I think will raise some questions for us as we go through them. But I'd like to begin now in Romans chapter 13 with, with verse 1, and we find the emphasis here, Paul's teaching that we are to honor governing authorities out of reverence for God. In verses 1 and 2, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Now, that's a, a strong statement that, frankly, a strong couple of uh, verses that raise lots of questions in my mind. Perhaps they do in your mind as well. Paul does not assume that governments must be Christian here. The Roman government at that time was not and often even hostile to Christians, but Paul is saying we Christians are to be good citizens, honor the laws, honor the governing authorities. Why is he doing this? Why is the Apostle Paul stressing this? In chapter 12, he's been talking about the importance of uh, living a life of love toward others, even loving our enemies. Why is he shifting now to the importance of believers being good citizens and obeying human institutions, our governing authorities, our law enforcement? Why is he focusing here? I think it is in part because believers in Paul's time heard much about being members of a new kingdom. Jesus came preaching the kingdom of God, saying the kingdom of God is in your midst. We have a new King Jesus. And Paul has already told us in Romans chapter 10 that for the believer 
the confession whereby we are saved as an expression of faith in our hearts is this. Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. Jesus is Lord. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Paul himself would write in the book of Philippians, our citizenship is in heaven, and from there we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So believers had this knowledge. We're members of a new kingdom. Our ultimate allegiance is to the King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus Christ. We don't say Caesar is Lord. We say Jesus is Lord. And as we look at other parts of the New Testament, it would seem that at times Christians may have been uh, questioned, challenged by those outside of the church about their allegiance, about whether they paid taxes. And so I think in part, Paul's emphasizing here, yes, you're members of a new kingdom, but here on this earth, we believers are to be good citizens. We're to honor the government. We're to obey the laws. One of the reasons he may be stressing this now, just a few verses earlier in Romans chapter 12, which we studied last week, the Apostle Paul wrote these words, repay no one evil for evil. Repay nobody evil for evil. If your neighbor burns down your barn, you don't go and burn down his barn. And then he writes in verse 19 of chapter 12, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Well, that doesn't seem very just, does it? We've got to leave all vengeance to God. Is there justice? Is there fairness? Just a few verses later now, in Romans 13, we see Paul writing these words about the government, about the law enforcement that is in place, for he is the servant of God. In Romans 13, verse 5, Paul writes, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. A few verses earlier, God says, vengeance is mine, I'll repay and now Paul is saying this law enforcement, this human institution, is an instrument of God's vengeance on the wrongdoer. So if your neighbor burns down your barn in a just society, what does a believer do? You don't turn around and burn down his barn, but you appeal to the just authority. You let law enforcement take its course, and, uh, and you can appeal to that. Now, Two reasons, then, I'm, I'm suggesting Paul may be focusing on this here. But Paul is not teaching that all earthly rulers are good or godly. Clearly, they're not. What he's teaching us here, I think, is that a society of law and order and law enforcement is good and necessary. We don't have to think very long about what a society would be like if there were no laws and no law enforcement. It would be certainly chaotic. Now, all kinds of questions arise when we look at verses like this. And these verses in Romans have been wrongly used. They've been misused over time throughout history by corrupt and ungodly rulers to oppress people. So I'd like to step back just for a moment and look at the big picture of, of what I think Scripture teaches us about human institutions governing authorities, and especially as they relate to believers. First of all, 
God is sovereign. He is sovereign over nations. He is sovereign over rulers. The book of Psalms in Psalm 75 tells us it's the Lord who puts one up and takes down another. The verse you see before you from Daniel chapter 4 uh, comes at a point when, when a, a, a not-so-godly uh, ruler is ruling. His name was Nebuchadnezzar, <clears throat> and because of his lack of yieldedness to God, God gives him this dream that he's going to be driven away from the throne until he knows that, quote, the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliness, lowliest of men. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't understand, so he goes to, to Daniel, and Daniel explains that you're going to be driven from your throne till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. I think of what Jesus said to Pontius Pilate prior to his being sent for flogging and crucifixion. Jesus said to Pilate, you would have no power over me if it were not given you from above. And yet Pilate turned around and used that power, that authority, to condemn Jesus to crucifixion. God is ultimately sovereign. This does not mean God is the author of sin. God is the answer to sin. But there's another truth we see in Scripture, and that is that evil rulers, and there have been many of them in history and still are today, evil rulers may be a form of God's judgment on a people or a nation. One of the books that I think shows this more clearly is the Old Testament book of Judges. Book of Judges is particularly interesting because the very last verse in the book, Judges 21-25, is a, is a really a great summary of the entire book. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And if you study the book of Judges, it is a series of cycles. God's people rebelling against the Lord. And so God lifts his protective hand and allows an oppressive ruler to rule over them. The people are oppressed. The people of Israel are oppressed. Ultimately, they cry out to God for help, and God raises up a judge, typically a military ruler like Samson or Gideon or Deborah. And this judge, this uh, leader, leads them in victory against the ungodly ruler, they turn back to God, giving him praise, but the cycle continues as they turn away from God. It's one of the places that we see that evil rulers may be, and I stress maybe. We don't always assume uh, that a, a people have an evil ruler because they're evil or rebellious people. God is not the author of sin. God is the answer to sin. Another truth we see in Scripture, and this is important here, um, because all kinds of questions arise when we read we're to obey governing authorities and think about applying that to our lives, particularly when governing authorities decree things that are evil or ungodly. Another principle we see in Scripture is this. Believers must obey God's will over unrighteous governmental decrees. Do we have examples in Scripture 
of believing people, people who believe in and seek to serve God, disobeying some ruling authority, some government, governmental decree? And the answer, of course, is yes. There are lots of examples. Just a few very quickly. The book of Exodus in the Old, Old Testament, in the very first chapter, um, the king of Egypt uh, was getting fearful of the rapidly uh, strengthening body of Hebrews, growing number of Hebrews, and he, he told the, the midwives who helped the Hebrew women uh, deliver children, if, if it's a boy, you put the boy to death. You can let the girls live, put, put all the boys to death. What a horrible thing. But let the male children live. Well, the, uh, the midwives feared God, the scripture says, and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but to let the male children live. So flagrant, flagrantly disobeyed the king when he challenged them. They, they actually lied to him a bit, and God rewarded them. Book of Daniel in the Old Testament is a, is a most interesting book, I think, for studying the life of a believing person under governmental authority that is, that is not by any means godly or God-honoring. Um, begins with Daniel and his other friends um, making uh, this, being resolved that they didn't want to uh, defile themselves with the diet that the king prescribed for them as he was uh, raising them up to be leaders in his kingdom. And so uh, Daniel respectfully, graciously appeals to have only vegetables and water for himself and for his friends, and God blesses them for this. But as you, as you read Daniel's appeal, I think he does it particularly respectfully. Daniel chapter 3 we see, uh, we see this king uh, making a decree that um, people have to worship this golden image that he had set up. And Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, said, we can't do it. You know, if anybody doesn't do it, they're going to be thrown into the fire. And if you've heard the story or read the the uh, book of Daniel, you know, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego were thrown into the fiery furnace and God saved them. There was not even the smell of smoke upon their clothing. The scripture says they respectfully disagreed. God protected them. They disobeyed the decree. Daniel himself in Daniel chapter six had been highly promoted in the kingdom. Other governors, because Daniel had been promoted to a ruling uh, position were jealous of him. So they go to the king and they get the king to make this decree to sign an injunction that anybody praying to any God or man within 30 days except the king would be cast into the den of lions. And what do we see in Daniel 6 verses 12 and 13? Daniel, as you'll see in that passage, uh, continued praying as he'd always prayed. And he was thrown into lion's den, and you may have heard the story when you're just a child, but God shut the mouths of the lions, and Daniel was preserved. What about in the New Testament? We have any examples of people obeying God rather than governing authorities? There are quite a few. The birth of Jesus in Matthew chapter 2, as you see in these verses on the screen, 
Herod had summoned the Magi, the wise men, and said, hey, when you find this child, bring me word so I can go and worship him. But the Magi were warned in a dream not to return to Herod, and they departed to their own country by another way. They disobeyed the king. They obeyed God. In the book of Acts, we see it as well. Acts chapter 4, Peter and John were charged not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. And Peter and John say, well, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you judge. We cannot but speak with what we've seen and heard. And then in Acts chapter 5, they are, uh, again, uh, disobeying the decree. They're preaching in the name of Jesus. And Peter and the apostles say, what? We must obey God rather than men. So, when governing authorities contradict the clear, revealed will of God, believers do have a higher allegiance. Now, Peter, I, I want to get back to Romans 13 because Romans 13 is not about disobeying government decrees, but, but obeying them as good citizens to the, in as much as we can. Here's what Peter writes about this. Be subject for the Lord's sake. And note the words, for the Lord's sake. It's part of our witness as believers to be good citizens, to obey laws, to pay our taxes, to live honorably in our nation, in our country. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, or to governors who sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do well. And again, this is the purpose of human, the in, human institution of law enforcement, punish evil, praise those who do good, for this is the will of God that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. And it may be, again, that believers were being accused about having a higher allegiance and some probably charged believers with not being submissive to laws of the land. But Peter says, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Peter himself, by the way, would escape from prison. In Acts chapter 12, Herod had decided to put him to death, but when God opens a prison, Peter escapes. Throughout history, there have been horrible, horrible human rulers, horrible human decrees. And there have been many times when God called upon his people to disobey. Uh, Beth and I, when we were in Washington, D.C. not long ago, went to the Holocaust Museum. I'm sure many of you have been there. What a sobering, moving experience. And uh, we got to see a number of videos about people who helped Jews escape during the Holocaust. And we rightly consider those people heroes. All of this reminds us that as believers, we got a very, very high calling. And Paul gives it to us in 1 Timothy chapter 2 when he says, First of all, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Believers are to obey the governing authorities, knowing that we do have a higher allegiance. Secondly, Paul goes on to say, related to this, we're to pay our debts and live under the continuing obligation of love for others. 
Now, why does Paul need to tell Christians to pay their taxes? Why does Paul need to tell us to do that? I suspect for the same reason Jesus made a point of it. In Matthew chapter 17, we read these words. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? The two drachma tax was a temple tax. And um, he said, yes. And then he came into the house and Jesus spoke to him first saying, what do you think, Simon? That's Simon Peter. From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open his mouth, you'll find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for, your, and for you. What's Jesus saying? He's saying, Peter, kings of the earth, this is at least what I, I think he's saying about this temple tax, members of the royal family, the sons of the king were exempt from the tax. And so Jesus says to Peter, what do you think? Do the kings of the earth take tax from their sons or others? Peter said, well, from others. Sons are exempt. Jesus says, then the sons are free. And I think what Jesus is hinting at here is that the sons of the kingdom, we're the real sons of the kingdom, sons of the God whom we worship in the kingdom. Through your faith in Christ, you are children of the king, the king of kings and lord of lords. That's true, but we pay our taxes. We don't give offense to these governing authorities. Um, and, and Paul essentially is saying the same thing here in Romans 13. And verse 8, you'll see the words on the screen, pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. One little aside here, because some people have taken this verse to teach, you can't even uh, ever have any uh, long-term debt like a mortgage, I don't think that's what this is teaching. Most of us do have mortgages on our homes, but it means we should pay it. It means we should pay our debts and pay all of our bills. Paul um, is stressing that believers are to be good citizens. We're to honor those who are in positions of authority. They may not be believers, but we honor them because of their position probably something we particularly need to pay heed to in our time because in recent years, and I'm thinking over the past decades, it seems like the, the mocking hatred toward you know, various political leaders, people who are in office, has, has reached a level I thought I'd, I'd never see. In fact, this uh, past week, Beth and I were traveling and we saw some things on signs in the front yards of people. I'm, I'm talking about really profane words about various political leaders. Um, a little bit taken aback, a little bit, bit shocking. Uh, even the Apostle Paul, when he was taken before the high priest and Paul called him, I think he, he used the phrase of whitewashed washed offense because of his hypocrisy. Even Paul, those stood around him, said, do you know he's a high priest? Paul said, oh, brethren, I didn't know that. 
Because the scripture says you shall not speak evil of a rule of your people. Even if he's bad, even if he's wrong, even if he's evil, Paul's doing the best he could to honor that authority. So, pay your taxes. Respect to whom respect is due. Honor to whom honor is due. Owe no one anything. And now he shifts gears, except one thing. We believers, we work hard, we're good citizens, we obey laws. Yes, our ultimate allegiance is to God always, but we're good citizens, we're good witnesses. We don't give offense by not paying taxes and living as rebels. We know, owe no one anything. We pay our debts, but we have an obligation that endures. And Paul is saying here, it's the love law. We always live under an obligation to love. And he explains something that's particularly important to understand. The one who loves another fulfills the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Jesus had said the greatest law is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. The second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these. So Paul is coming to the importance of the new commandment Jesus gave, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another the law of love. This is the way we believers are to live. When love for God, love for others fills our hearts. We don't steal. We don't commit adultery. We don't murder. We don't even covet. As we're filled with the Spirit, as Paul wrote earlier in Romans, we're filled with love for God and neighbor. We fulfill the commandments. Now, let me just step aside here just for a moment and stress this, because people have said this to me before. They've said, well, you know, all this about being born again, being saved really doesn't matter. All that matters is love. You, you, you love everybody. Maybe somebody said that to you before. Oh, I just believe in loving everybody. I don't believe in any religion. I just believe you love everybody and you'll be okay. Well, none of us can love everyone perfectly. Who among us has loved God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength perfectly all the time? None of us has. Who among us has loved our neighbor as ourself? None of us has. That is not a prescription for being born again or entering the kingdom of God. It's a prescription for how to live as a believer. Paul has already given us in Romans how the law is fulfilled in us, and it's found in Romans chapter 8, verses 3 and 4, and you'll see it on the screen. God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he, Christ, condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. How is the righteous requirement of God's law fulfilled in you, in me? 
is about being, doing the best we can to love everybody as best we can. Well, we are to live a life of love. But we cannot earn our righteousness even by our efforts to love. Trying to love everybody does not justify me. No one loves God and neighbor perfectly. You and I cannot fulfill the law of love apart from the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. We're justified one way by faith in him. The requirement of the law is fulfilled in us by Christ, and then we fulfill the mandates of the law by walking in love, loving others as Christ has loved us. That's our obligation. And then finally, Paul wraps up this section of Romans by writing that we're also to live in light of the Lord's return. Again, believers may have had questions about obeying earthly rulers because they were living with, I suspect, a much greater awareness that Jesus could come at any time than most of us typically live with. Paul writes, besides this, you know the time. You know the time. The hours come for you to wake from sleep. Salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So let us then cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Paul's saying we're closer now to Jesus' return than we were when we first believed the gospel. And this is incentive to be sure we live increasingly holy lives. Believers may have had questions about obeying earthly government and paying taxes precisely because they'd been so well taught about Jesus' return and his coming reign. But Paul's saying it's precisely because of that coming of Christ that we need to live properly now. Being good law-abiding citizens, paying our taxes, paying our debts, and above all, walking in love and walking in holiness, casting off the works of darkness, putting on the spiritual armor so that we live lives of holiness. How do we summarize all this then? Paul would say later in Philippians that our citizenship is in heaven, and from there, from heaven, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus. And when he comes, he's going to transform our lowly bodies to be like his own by the power that will enable him to subject all things to himself. I think we can summarize all this this way. We're citizens of a new kingdom. We have a new king. He is the king of kings, the Lord of lords. He is Jesus Christ, our ultimate authority. But we don't disregard this world. We're to be good citizens here. We're to obey laws. We're to honor authority. We're to pay taxes. And we're to love others but we're always to keep our eyes on the coming King of Kings. And when he returns, there will be perfect justice. There will be perfect love. We will have perfectly transformed minds. And as Paul writes here in Philippians, we'll even have transformed bodies like Christ's glorious body. And we live in light of that coming of our Lord Jesus. Well, as we close, just three questions by way of personal application. Number one, has the righteous requirement of God's law been fulfilled in me? Can you say you know that for a certainty? 
That only happens one way, and that is by having embraced Jesus Christ as your Savior and as your Lord, putting your trust in him, what he did on the cross to atone for your sins. Secondly, am I living out of the law of love? It's love for God and love for others that compels me to obey the Ten Commandments. And then finally, am I living in light of Jesus' return? By the genuineness of my witness to the world around me, by the holiness of my life, by the stewardship of my resources, by the devotion of my heart. Let's pray about that this morning. Father, thank you for the encouragement of the scripture. Lord, we pray for a greater work of the Holy Spirit in each of our lives that we would rely fully on the saving work of Jesus and we would rely completely on the power of the Holy Spirit to live lives that reflect well upon our Savior Jesus, to live lives that are bold in our witness for you. Let us be good citizens, Lord, in this world, but especially good citizens of the kingdom of God. Strengthen us, Father, with might by your spirit, we pray today in Jesus' holy name. Amen.